Runoff, a crime novel about election fraud, evokes a curious timelessness of classic detective fiction. A noir gem, says Mystery Scene Magazine. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 3. You Can Fight City Hall Mingling again with the hordes of tourists on Grant Street and getting poked repeatedly in the ribs for my trouble by a rotund woman carrying a paper parasol, I had the sense of coming back to the real world. It now seemed more than a little fantastic that I had been hired to investigate election fraud in one of the largest cities on the West Coast. I peered into the envelope Lisa had given me and looked at the retainer check. Drawn for $5,000 on the Bank of Canton with the neatly written memo, Mayoral Election Investigation, it at least had the patina of legitimacy. I made it as far as Old St. Mary's before lingering doubts about the case arrested all forward progress. I felt like I needed some kind of confirmation that there was any basis to believe that there had been election irregularities. I sat down on one of the stone benches outside the granite trim doorway of the cathedral and pulled out my cell phone. With the aid of the overpriced directory service and a few calls to the city hall switchboard, I learned a number of things. The first was that asking the switchboard operators for information was like asking for a DNA sample. The second was that, surprisingly enough, city elections were run and monitored by the Department of Elections, with oversight by something called the Elections Commission. Finally, I learned the director of the department was a guy named Jerry Bowman. I asked to be transferred to his office, and Mr. Bowman himself picked up on the second ring, which suggested I'd been given his private line. I figured the switchboard operator must like him even less than she liked me. Department of Elections, Jerry Bowman. He said in a toneless voice, as boring as high school Latin. I couldn't think of any subtle way to ask him if he thought the last election was rigged, so I decided to play it straight. Mr. Bowman, I'm a private investigator named August Reardon. I've been hired by Lenora Lee to look into concerns she has about the mayoral election results. I wondered if you could answer a few questions for me. I didn't hear anything for a long moment, and then there was the sound of a heavy breath being drawn. I've already spoken to Mrs. Lee about her concerns. There is no reason to think there were significant problems with the election. If she feels otherwise... Her best recourse would have been to encourage Chow to protest the results. Now the deadline is passed. The cold from the stone bench was seeming through my top coat. I shifted my buttocks around so I could limit the frostbite to one cheek. I understand, I said. But Mrs. Lee has a particular concern about the touchscreen voting systems that were put into place for this election. Maybe if you could see your way clear to explain the voting fraud safeguards... 
I could pass the information on, and Mrs. Lee and I would both be out of your hair. Interesting suggestion, Mr. Reardon, he said in his toneless voice. But I don't think that's the best use of my time. I can get you out of my hair with the press of a button. Like this. I folded up the phone and watched as a six- or seven-year-old boy broke ranks with a stream of tourists and attacked invisible enemies near my bench with the plastic samurai sword his mother had bought him. There was a lot of gesturing and hacking, but very little in the way of real results. I was feeling a little like that about my activities in the last 24 hours. I opened the phone again to call Gretchen to reschedule my appointment with Dr. Ballou for tomorrow. It seemed a better use of my time would be making the director of elections work harder to get me out of his hair. San Francisco's city hall is larger and more opulent than many state capitol buildings. Part of the opulence comes from the $400 million that was lavished on it for repair and retrofit in the wake of the 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake, including about a half million worth of 24-karat gold leaf that was applied to the massive copper dome. I parked on the Polk Street side in a spot that was clearly reserved for a city official, permit holder number 72 to be exact, and went up the same steps that Marilyn Monroe and Joe DiMaggio had trod on their way to their short-lived 1954 wedding. Inside were artifacts from another famous, if not nearly so happy event in the building's history. Metal detectors. Dan White, the assassin of Mayor George Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk, had gone out of his way to avoid these by climbing in a basement window on the north side of the building with his 38 caliber revolver loaded with dum-dum bullets. I had left all my hardware in the car, including the knife I usually kept sheathed on my ankle, so the only things I had to drop into the basket before stepping through the detector were my keys and the heavy half-dollar-sized metal of St. Apollonia I carried in my pocket. I retrieved my stuff from the guard and wandered into the rotunda. Marble was the operative word here. The walls, the floor, and the grand staircase leading to the surrounding balconies were lousy with it. And when they couldn't use marble, they'd limp by with granite, polished oak, or cast iron trimmed in more gold leaf. I sojourned through the cavernous space, through a marble archway, and up to the building directory in a vestibule by the elevators. The Department of Elections, it seemed, was housed in the basement, room 48. The basement had every bit as much stonework as the rotunda, but with the lower ceilings and the lack of natural lighting, it came off more like a men's room at a train station than an architectural masterwork. The Bicycle Advisory Committee and Animal Care and Control were the only other departments down here so it wasn't hard to guess where elections fell in the political pecking order. Room 48 was actually a suite of offices with double doors that opened on a reception area. Behind an oak counter near the entrance stood a towering, Ichabod Crane-like figure with eyebrows long and bristly enough to attract pollinating bees. As I approached, he squared a stack of absentee ballot request forms and pushed them to one side on the counter. His eyebrows shot up his forehead in a welcoming, if weedy, expression, and he said, How may I help you? I'd like to speak to Jerry Bowman, 
Do you have an appointment? No, I don't. He patted the forms again, not making them any square. The director doesn't usually see people without an appointment. I think he'll want to see me. He looked at me over appraisingly, and I realized that the dragon lady may have been on to something with her insistence on formal business attire. I suppose I could check with him. Would you please tell me your name and the topic you'd like to discuss? Greg McQuaid, I said, borrowing the name of my pal, the cop. The topic was going to be harder to manufacture. I glanced behind the counter to a poster on the wall that talked about voter outreach and community participation. I'm here to talk to him about outreach to the Irish community. The guy behind the counter didn't quite smirk. Really? Yes, really. Irish American voters have the lowest turnout of any ethnic group in the city. Yet, as a bloc, they donate the largest amount to political campaigns. I want to discuss outreach programs to encourage voter participation. I paused in a significant way. I think he'll understand. Ichabod made an elaborate shrug, moving his eyebrows in tandem with his shoulders, and went down a hallway that opened off the reception area. I turned away from the counter and watched as a pimply guy eating a Clark bar opened and closed the drawers in the tall filing cabinets that ringed the waiting area. He didn't seem to be a department employee, but I couldn't figure out what the heck he was doing. He felt my eyes on him and looked over. FPPC forms, he said, and stuffed the last of the Clark bar into his mouth. FPPC? He nodded as he chewed. Fair Political Practices Commission. They require forms for campaign disclosures and contributions to be open for public inspection. He licked chocolate off a finger and then extended it to point at me in an accusatory way. Irish, don't give dick. I snorted and turned back to the counter. In a moment, Ichabod returned with an odd look on his face. Mr. Bowman is in conference. I suggest you call to make an appointment for another time. I'm sure he'll be happy to see you then. How about if I just wait? I don't know how long he'll be. I glanced at my watch. It was already 3.30 and I realized I hadn't had anything to eat all day. I'd seen a sign pointing to a cafeteria, so I decided to beat a tactical retreat there, refuel on the tater tot casserole, or whatever other delicacy they had coagulating in the steam trays, and come back to wait out Mr. Bowman. I nodded to Ichabod, and went out the office doors. The cafeteria was down a corridor that paralleled the one Ichabod had taken to see Bowman. At about the 20-yard point was an unmarked door that was slightly ajar. If the floor plan included a private entrance to the director's office, this is a place it would be. I checked to see if anyone was watching, and then tugged at the knob. The latch slid off the strike plate, and the door came open further. Inside, I could see a slice of the carpet and a corner of the dark mahogany desk. I figured this had to be it. I tapped on the doorframe. Excuse me, Mr. Bowman, I said. My voice sounded tentative to my ears, like a grade schooler asking permission to go to the bathroom. Tentative or not, Bowman didn't answer. I pulled the door open wider and stuck my head into the room. Ichabod had told me that Jerry Bowman was in conference. 
The only thing the big man behind the desk was in conference with was a letter opener, right through the neck. His head hung lifeless off the back of the chair, his mouth gaped open, and his eyes bulged in a fixed stare at the ceiling. The handle of the letter opener, a miniature medieval sword with a silver crossguard and a jeweled pommel, gleamed cruelly at the side of his neck. Blood had flowed from the wound to cover his dresser like a ghastly bib. The skin on his bald head looked mottled and gray, and I didn't have any doubts that he was dead. I came up to check anyway, but couldn't bring myself to probe his neck for the carteroid artery. I lifted a meaty wrist and didn't find any sign of a pulse, but he was still warm to the touch, and there didn't seem to be any indication of rigor. All that made sense, since I had talked to him less than an hour before. I dropped his hand back to his ample gut, and a plastic cap of some sort tumbled from his palm to land on his chair near his crotch. I didn't like where it landed, but I didn't like any of this. I pushed his chair back a little to get maneuvering room and used a key for my ring to daintily spear it. I held it up to the light. It was small and nearly square in shape, a little larger than a piece of chiclet's gum. It was made from translucent purple plastic, and it had a clip on it to attach to a shirt pocket. I supposed it could have been a cap for a felt-tip pen, perhaps the kind used for highlighting. I set it down on the desk blotter and squatted to look on the floor for my hypothetical pen. I found paper clips, a penny, and a receipt from a hardware store. I stood up. The desk was clear of writing implements, and I didn't want to muddle the scene any further by opening drawers. The fact of the matter was I was stalling, and I knew it. Although the cap had been in Bowman's hand, it may or may not have had any more significance than the hardware receipt. I simply didn't want to face the music with the cops. I briefly considered walking, but Ichabod and the guards at the front of the building would be able to identify me, and my selection of Greg McQuaid as my alias had been particularly unfortunate. I shoved Bowman back under the desk and rubbed the places I'd touch his chair with my handkerchief. No use giving the cops any more than necessary to get excited about. I looked down at Bowman a final time. Dark blood welled in his mouth like crude oil in a drill hole. I shivered and turned away. The lock button was down on the knob of the interior door, so I exited the way I'd come, dragged myself up the corridor, and into the elections office. The guy with the Clark bar was gone, but Ichabod was hunched over the counter looking bored, his chin resting in his palms. He frowned when he saw me. I told you I didn't know how long Mr. Bowman would be. Try an eternity, I said. You have been listening to Runoff, a book hard-boiled great James Crumley described as a smart, funny, spooky, often touching, always entertaining romp. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. <laughs>